Welcome to Well, I Know Now, the podcast in which I talk to people affected by dementia in all sorts of different ways. I can honestly say that every one of my guests has highlighted something new about the condition, about life and about what's important in it. I'm Pippa Kelly. My mum Kay lived with vascular dementia for her last 10 years. Her diagnosis came about in the wake of a terrible crisis. And when it did, my family and I knew nothing about the condition. Now though, through my writing and campaigning, I know so much more about dementia. I know now that it's possible to live a decent, if changed, life post-diagnosis. I know it's down to society, to all of us, to help those with the condition live better, more fulfilled lives. And I know that it's often the smallest things that make the most difference. The poet Sylvia Plath wrote, well, I know now a little more about how much a simple thing like a snowfall can mean to a person. Dementia teaches you this too. I first met today's guest, a professional cellist, at a wonderful musical evening where three internationally renowned opera singers performed The Audition, a piece written for audiences of older people and those with dementia. She spoke then of the powerful communication, the dialogue, conversation, connection between the performance and audience members. And it seems to me that throughout her extraordinary life, my guest, who was born and raised in America, has been connecting and inspiring people through music. Dr. Claire Garabidian has played with modern and Baroque orchestras in the USA, Japan, and the UK, and chamber music with many of the world's greatest musicians. She's also played her cello in the most intimate of settings, at the bedside of individuals who are dying. And it was while doing the latter that she experienced at first hand what she describes as the raw, intense realness of death and dying, and a purpose for playing music that is entirely separate from performing. Fired up by this, she enrolled in an American course using music as a transitional healing force and qualified as a certified music practitioner, enabling her to play her cello at the bedside of people in palliative care in hospitals, hospices or their own homes. Relocating to Scotland in 2007, she discovered that certified music practitioners are not recognised over here, but undaunted, she completed an enhanced palliative care course at the University of Stirling, which led her ultimately to studying for a PhD in sociology, exploring the effects of playing familiar music on a solo cello on the relationship between two listeners, a care home resident with dementia in palliative care and someone closely connected to them. Which I have to say sounds like music to my ears, if you'll excuse that very clumsy pun. Dr. Garabedian then became a researcher of creative arts and dementia at the University of Worcester, during which time she gave presentations at national and international conferences, trained those wonderful specialist dementia nurses called Admiral Nurses, conducted workshops, evaluations, and research on various aspects of music and dementia, and made several media appearances. She now combines her quite brilliant talents, experience, and knowledge to provide services for all sorts of people, from those with health conditions, including dementia, to their families and carers, to those who are nearing the end of life, to students, and really, as far as I can make out, to anyone interested in exploring the use of music to support and connect us all. So you can see why I was very keen to have her as my guest. One of Claire's musical colleagues said that she was a top-notch musician put on the planet 
to use the vibrations of music for healing and love. And I couldn't agree more. So Dr. Claire Garabidian, a very, very warm welcome to Well, I Know Now. Thank you very much. That was a lovely introduction. Well, I, I'm always terrified I'm going to get something wrong in my introductions. I hope I didn't. No, not at all. Good. Well, I think, you know, you and I have met, and I, I think you know that the power of music to enhance the lives of those with dementia is something that's very, very dear to my heart. So I can't wait to get talking to you about it. But before we go right to the sort of nitty-gritty of it, while doing my research on you, I did discover more about the fabulous beginnings of your career as a cellist. So could you tell us about how it all began when you were nine years old, I think? Yes, and in fact, I've been telling this to a few students because I found myself recently teaching in the schools, which is lovely teaching students about music. And one of them asked me very recently about how I started the cello. And I started because I had two grandparents on my mother's side who met when they were playing the trumpet, which is very unusual for a woman back in, I don't know, the 1920s, I would guess. Yes, must have been. Um, 30s, maybe, in the middle of the United States. My grandmother had very bad asthma, so a doctor had suggested she play the trumpet. And she met my grandfather, and he came from a very musical, eccentric family. My great grandmother played the double bass and um i had no idea although my mother listened to a lot of classical music i didn't have any idea what a cello or a violin was but i certainly knew what a trumpet was so mm. i ended up going to a state school our equivalent of a state school that had a music program and i came in a little late after the school year had started and i knew i wanted to play an mm. instrument and went over and i said well i want to play the trumpet I had a trumpet because I had my grandparents' trumpets. And mm. she, of course, said trumpet was long ago. All the trumpets had been spoken for and probably flute because those are the popular instruments. Yes. I can imagine all the boys took that. That would have been like 1970 at the most. Mm. So I went, okay, uh, well, do you have any instruments? And she thought for a moment, she said, well, I have the violin and the cello. And to this day, I think that's a little random. She didn't talk about the French horn, the bassoon, the viola. I think those also up for grabs, probably. Mm -hmm. But she did say cello and violin, and I still remember so clearly going home a little sad, defeated, and saying, well, all they have are these two instruments. And I had no idea if you hit them, blew into them, what they were. Yes. And she thought for a moment, and she said, start the cello because the violin is so screechy when you first start. <laughs> and I kind of went, okay. And I was this scrawny little nine-year-old. Was that your mum who said that? Yes, it was my mom. Oh, well, I'm with her because I was hopeless. I, had, I played the viola so badly. Oh, and I think beginning violin. Oh. My grandma thought, she said, will you put the cat out? And I said, Granny, the cat died three years ago. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. I mean, you know, I, and I do think there's a lot of jokes about that, but I also think parents need to think twice because she didn't think about how much she'd be carting me around with a cello. And so I brought home the next week or so this cello. And for me, it was quite a big instrument because I was little. And it was probably a half-sized cello, as they call them. But... I think I took to it immediately because it was big. You kind of wrap your arms around it. I just took to it. I absolutely took to it. I was lucky enough to get private lessons after a period of time. 
and with a lovely old Dutch woman who I've named my Dutch cello after, Rita. So she was probably all of 50 or something at the time, but to me, that was very old. So yeah, so I was just very lucky to have gotten to find the cello. Absolutely. And you took to it very naturally. And Yes. Mm-hmm. Who were your influences at that time? Who did you like to listen to? Well, the big ones then, early 70s, would have been Casals, of course, Pablo mm-hmm. Casals, mm-hmm. and Jacqueline Dupre. I mean, she was really a goddess to all the female cellists, particularly, you know, it wasn't a female focused instrument at that time. And she really broke that barrier. And she was really such a such a hero for all of us, really someone to look up to. So those two really were the big cellists. Right. And you went on to play, I mean, I, I saw that you played with Led Zeppelin. Where did you yeah. play with where did you play with Led Zeppelin? Well, as I say to cello students, I say, look, I say, you don't know what's going to happen with the cello. Yeah, okay, it's a square instrument. You're playing in classical orchestras. It has taken me all over the world. I have met amazing people. I played with Ray Charles. I played with Ellie Cole. I played with some wonderful people that way. But, you know, the Led Zeppelin one is the one I pull out when I really want to make somebody kind of think twice. But it was Matt Glazer is a fantastic violinist who's very well known, particularly in the United States. He's a mm-hmm. jazz violinist. He played the soundtracks for the amazing Ken Burns Civil War documentary. And he was the person who hired for Led Zeppelin when they came through town. They were doing their worldwide, I think, year-long tour. This is back in 96, I think. Mm-hmm. And I was living in Boston. He asked me to play. And it was an incredible absolutely amazing experience we were in the fleet center which was the brand new basketball arena had just been built first time anything had been in there i think it seats forty thousand, but i'd have to check big wow big really big and we just you know you for these kinds of jobs you just run through the music once and then you do the concert so we did two nights and you know of course packed and we're behind the drums and Mm. you know with plexiglass and it was an amazing experience. There's so much I could say about that. I'll bring that up again as we talk, because now that I think about it, there are things about that, that huge an audience. Yes. Completely entrained, which is a word that will be a thread. And really, there was such entrainment there long before I knew about it. You know, everybody mm. very focused on what was going on. Yes. Why mm. we go to a rock concert like that is a, mm. is a completely transformative you have a way of being anything but in the moment with it. Mm. You can't be away from it. Mm, mm, mm. But also I was fascinated to see that, you know, on the one hand there's that, and then almost at the other end of the spectrum you do a lot of Baroque. Yes. Which one with, I mean, I'm, you know, not, as you can probably tell, not so musical, but that seems to me almost like, yes, poles apart. And you've played with the Dunedin Consort. Do they sometimes play... On original instruments? Generally, always on original instruments. And Rita um, was my cello teacher, and she was Dutch. She had a cello that had a lion's head squirrel, and I have a cello built in 1702 that I had her 300th birthday. I celebrated by doing four centuries of music on that cello. And so, yes, that's an original Baroque cello. I've been very lucky that way. I've played with fantastic Baroque players. Yeah, no, no sort of sumptuous music. That's lovely. And 
let's bring you up a, a little bit more then towards the dementia. And I believe, correct me if I get any of this wrong, but it was really as you saw some of your friend's parents growing older and because you played the cello so well and professionally often you would just do that naturally you would you would play in people's sort of what we call living rooms and you found yourself doing that and you saw some of the effects on these older people I mean did some of them have dementia your parents friends or just just describe how you then began to see these incredible effects that your playing had on individuals well you know as performers, and if you go to conservatory, I went to New England Conservatory, you know, you're you're trained to be a performer, you know, especially back then, they broadened now considerably. So I was trained to be a performer. And that is very different than what we're talking about here. And I think now that the trajectory was, as I was being very, you know, very much trained to be a high level performer, First, my grandfather, the trumpet-playing grandfather. Now I realize he most likely had dementia, but this would have been back in the maybe late 80s. And he was in L.A. in a very terrible, like they don't do that luckily very much anymore, nursing homes where mm. he developed paranoia. He oh. lost his ability to speak. It was very awful, and he lasted for seven years that way, and it should you know, he was put on a feeding tube. They don't do that more than luckily. But I would go in and play for him because I was very close to him. Mm. And it had been a history for us because he'd been a musician. He loved having me play and particularly the swan. That was his... Well, the sad song. Yes, mm. very famous fellow piece. Mm. And that was something I had in years before played for him. Mm. And I didn't know what to do. I was quite young myself when this was all happening. And the only thing I could think to do was to bring my cello in and play for him. Mm. So I did the swan and it did, it made him, you know, he would have tears and it did make a difference. And I felt like I was for a minute, just a little brief minute, taking him, you know, hopefully out of the reality he was in. Mm. But I wouldn't have been able to very clearly verbalize that to you then. I just knew I was doing what I could. Yes. And later on, yes, friends of mine's parents started growing older and some of them got very ill. And I had the honor and, you know, just I felt it was a privilege and honor to give back to some of these people that I also called mom and dad. I would play in, you know, they'd say, oh, play for family gatherings. And so I would mm -hmm. play, which very egotistical on the one hand and also though I could see that I was giving something so when these same parents became very ill mm. I took out the cello and I played at the bedside and I thought there's something going on here I also took care of a man who had AIDS mm. who he knew I was a cellist and he had no interest it was respite care and he had no interest in classical music but he had always said when I'm in those last days I want you to come play the cello. And I had kind of nodded and kind of thought, oh, that's never going to happen. He was only 48. And when he was in that last day, and I knew he was at the hospice, mm -hmm. I got my cello and I played at his bedside. And by the time I'd gotten home, he'd already kind of slipped away when I was there into a coma and he had died. Gosh. And I also took care of a man who was 102 when he died. And I was there for the last two years of his life. He had no dementia and neither did this man who had AIDS, but they mm. were 
very much at the ends of their lives. And mm. Oren was this magnificent man who was more lucid than anybody I'll ever meet all the way up to the end. But that last day when I used to play for him regularly, that was part of my job with him. And that last day I knew something was going on and I got out the cello and sat outside the door playing for him, playing Bach. But all through those experiences, when I played for my friend with AIDS, when I played for Oren, I thought, I know this is doing something good. I know this is good, but I don't feel like I know what I'm doing. I'm still in this, like, not quite performing, but I'm not, I, there's something missing. That was when this music, um, the MHTP program, three different people over a period of time. That's for healing and... Music for healing and transition program. Mm, in America. Yes. You've obviously got an innate caring side to you because you're a musician. You were playing with all sorts of orchestras and very eclectic mix by the sound of it. But you were also, I mean, you've mentioned two people you were giving respite care to, you were looking after. You must have had this compassionate, caring side to you as well, always there. I suppose that's true. And I've had most of my cello teachers were older, very strong, particularly women. Mm. I was very lucky to study with the people I've studied with, and they were also role models. So when this program, MHTB, I didn't know anything about it. But three different people over about, I'm going to say five years, that I did not know well. I can tell you their names, but I'm very happy that I'm standing in a queue with somebody, you know, just very distant kind of casual conversations and something would come up about what they did and they talked about this program but I always thought it was only for harp players oh why did you think that because you associated the harp with heaven and angels <laughs> well with the end of life and also their little emblem has a harp in it and right. indeed there are a lot of harp players that are involved and for some reason that was what I had in my mind these three one was a singer the last one was an oboe player and Although I found out later she does play the harp, but that was funny. She was in a Baroque orchestra that I was running, a community Baroque orchestra, one in Seattle and one in St. Andrews that are still going. And um, when she said that, I said, but it's only for harp players. And she said, oh, no, it's for any instrument. And I had all the paperwork. I'd gotten it years before I'd explored being a chaplain. I'd been interested in that as a possibility. And here was this amazing program. And I thought, okay, this is affordable. It's five different weekends. You read a lot of different Mm. books. You have to learn a lot about repertoire. And I thought, I could do this. And so I did. And it was absolutely eye-opening for me to Mm. find out that there were indeed things I was missing. I was right about that. And I got filled in on a lot of that and then have continued, as you said, exploring that at a much more deep level. You talk very well about... Well, there's the entrainment and there's also the way you talk about creating a space. You say sometimes a sonic haven or sonic space or a place for people to be. And you are there with them. It's this place. You talk about this great sense of place, of being. Right. So those are two of the most important ones. There's all sorts of little things about the modes and the scales and temperaments and all sorts of things we could talk about. But I think those are the two Rhythm is very important also. 
So for me, well, part of the rhythm thing is this word entrainment. Mm -hmm. So entrainment, I mentioned earlier, and I was talking about the, you know, Led Zeppelin, and that's a great example of that. Mm. Music, when it's used well, and Mm. that could be, I should say, any art. When we go to a performance, I like to use this as an example. If you go to a concert, a theater, Mm. whatever it is, you've got three people that you're going with, and you've all been looking forward to this for whatever reason. Well, maybe one is the partner of one and actually can't stand this type of music, but you've been looking forward to it for weeks. Someone else has been looking forward to it, but they've had a horrible cold and they're not feeling great, but they're going anyway. Someone else has had a terrible day at work, but they're going anyway. You will go to this concert and a good example is think of a Wagner opera so they could be five hours. Yes. (laughs) And I love doing that, but it's not for everybody. And if you go, that's a lot of, that's a lot of commitment. Mm. And if you're there and you're not in a good space when you go in or you didn't want to be there in the first place, those five hours are going to be a eternity. They're going to be they're going to be yes. longer than anything you've ever done in your life. And if yes. you went in gung-ho, this is what you wanted to be there for, you're really excited, that time, that same five hours is going to vanish. Yes. It's going to go so quickly. And you must have had that experience. You know, Absolutely. you go to a concert and it goes so fast. And you're like, but that was two and a half hours. How did that happen? Movies, you know, a book can do this. Mm-hmm. And that is called, there's a term for that in science that's very simple called flow. And F-L-O-W, flow is when you are so focused on something in a good way that it just time vanishes time. The reality of time isn't there anymore. If it's writing a paper for you and you're writing and all of a sudden you look up and hours have gone by and you go, that's such a, and it's a great thing. I think most people, whether they know it or not, are always looking for that experience. And so if we use and channel music particularly because sound is one of the last senses we lose, we touch and sound are some of the last bits we lose in mm-hmm. our sense experience. Yeah. So smell can do this too, for instance, but we yes. often say we lose our sense of smell. So if we're using these tools well and watching the nonverbal cues of the people involved well, then we can channel there's incredible power there with with them with changing things subtly, sometimes changing the mode, if you will, if it's something happy or sad that you're playing, changing the mood of the music, which is also called the ISO principle. It's not as well documented as entrainment, but it's about for me, it's about this incredible thing that I experienced while I was taking this MHTP course. And that's what sold me was a wonderful experience. I had the first day I was in that program. I was a little cynical. Mm. I was a module, as they called them, where others had already taken the first module. I was coming in for the second one just because of the timing. Yes. So they all knew each other. And I came in and it was after lunch and it was a warm day Mm. and this wonderful jazz guitarist started just noodling around on the guitar. We were all kind of sleepy. Mm. He's playing a beat tune. And someone said to him who knew him said, you know, that's lovely, but I'm just not feeling in the mood for that piece right now. Mm. And he thought for a minute 
and he started playing something very much more lazy. And then he gradually moved into that more, the same thing he'd been noodling around with before. And I could feel in my body how this lazy sort of music really matched where I was the day, what was going on. And then with him gradually moving it into that more lively music, I went right with him and I felt much more energized. And I thought, okay, that was amazing. I've never experienced that. And it sold me completely on this idea of entrainment. And it's a tool that's in the box of anybody who's doing therapy, actual music therapy or therapeutic work. Absolutely. It's a core tool. And the example I like to give of that also is that, yes, one of the things I really learned was, and I ask students all the time when I'm doing trainings, I'll say, okay, one of the things they often talk about with dementia is I don't like this term and I suggest people don't use it, this challenging behaviors term. It is not a challenging behavior, except that it challenges the people that are trying to care for the person. Yeah. The person who has dementia has lost the ability to either understand or communicate mm. how they're feeling. Mm. They might be uncomfortable. They might be too hot. They might be hungry. They Absolutely. might be itchy, but they can't communicate it. And that's very frustrating. So they become anxious and agitated. Mm-hmm. And what you can do with music or other things, but in this case, music is you know, I'll ask, what would you play? You come in, somebody's agitated. What are you going to play? What kind of music are you going to play? Mm, mm. Because I've researched you, I know what the answer is. Yes. But I think before I did, you might think, like with a baby when you're trying to get them to sleep, that you yes. might play them something soothing. But I, but yeah. I know it's not the right answer. It's not the right answer because in most cases, nothing is 100%. But in most cases... No, and what I say to people is, I didn't have children. I don't know if you did. But, you know, little kids, when they're having a tantrum, if you go down and try to put your arm around them, go, now, now, they're there. Mm, they throw you off. <laughs> they will, you, some mothers probably have some scars to show for doing that because that's not going to work to grab that mm, child. Mm, no, you're right. You have to get into it on their wavelength, and then you can maybe bring them by distraction or doing, you've got to do something to get them on your wavelength with you. So mm-hmm. you've got to get their wavelength first. So the first and foremost thing with dementia, I think in general, is getting to their wavelength, whatever that is, mm-hmm. in whatever ways you can, because they do have limitations. I mean, that's the frustration yes. for people living with dementia and people caring for them. Mm-hmm. So the music, when it's done right, can do this wonderful thing where I can go in and play. If somebody's sad, that's this comes with the ISO principle as well. Of someone sad, I'm not going to do the musical equivalent of pull your socks up and happy clappy music. I'm going to go in and say, I'm going to say non-verbally, I see you and I am validating your feeling mm. sad. Mm. I'm going to play sad for that person. I mean, sad is not a bad thing. Yes. And neither is agitation, by the way, It's or anger. They're all feelings. But if you're validated, if somebody can communicate to you that I see you, I see that's how you feel. Yes, you're safe, aren't you? Mm. Yes. Why we listen sometimes when you're sad, you want to listen to sad music, one or the other. It's usually not much else. That's because sometimes you want to feel sad. So sad. 
Yeah, Claire, I think now is a very good time, actually, because we're talking a lot about music. Let's listen to a bit, because I know that you and I spoke earlier. There's a piece where you illustrate this extremely well with your cello. So let's hear you now going from... Can you describe it? It's a very good example of how you've matched somebody's mood and then you can hear the music just changing the mood. Yes, and this is a tool that I try to give to others that are not musicians necessarily. You could do the singing as well. I take a simple piece. In this case, it's Twinkle Twinkle, Little Star. Very simple. You know, most people can sing it and most people can even play it on something. And I take that and I can play it in, I can play it the way you would normally expect to hear it, kind of cheerful. And then I play it in a minor key, so it's much slower and sadder. I can play it very fast and accelerated. And I can move through that simple piece and make it into something else. You know, and I can also improvise on that, which is, I don't, uh, not going to be doing that at this point, but I can add improvisation into that and, and extend it even longer. That is an example of something that I would do. And I was called in for quite exceptional experience during the time I was doing my field work for my PhD. I had been playing in maybe five different care homes for couples. So it was always the same people in the care home bedroom. It would be the resident who was living with dementia and in palliative care and someone closely connected to them, which would either be a family member or mm. sometimes it was a staff member who was very close to them, but it had to be the same pair each time. So I had played for this lovely gentleman considerable amount of times by now and had built a rapport with him. And he happened to be someone with two unusual traits. One was that he, he was the hardest one for me to play at, for at the time because he had been a considerably accomplished traditional Scottish musician as a hobby, but he had done it to quite a high level. And I was, you know, pretty new to Scotland from America and trying to learn how to play these well enough. These tunes for him was not easy for me. And the other thing that was unusual about him was he was the gentlest, loveliest man. However, I knew from the beginning I had been warned about him it was a lovely care home and they had had a hard time with his dementia as it progressed because in his particular situation, he had very much a, like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, he would get extremely, he would kind of go into another place and get quite mean. Mm. And it was getting harder for staff to know quite what to do. 
And I'd heard about this, but I'd never seen it because it usually happened as often changes happen, what they call sundownings. I was never there at that time. Mm. One day I was driving actually not to that care home and I got a text and I went to where I was supposed to go and someone had canceled, which happened often because people would get sick and various things would change. Mm -hmm. And I looked at this text that was from the care home manager at another care home where this gentleman lived saying, I'm sorry to bother you. We're having a very difficult time and wondered if you would by any chance, I call him Robert, that's not his real name. Could you possibly come in to play music for him? We can't get near him to give him his breakfast or his medications. He has to eat first and we don't know what to do. And they thought, well, he's a musician. He loves music. He loved, loved music. Mm. And they thought I had a relationship with him. Maybe that would work or help. So there was this opening because of this cancellation. I mm -hmm. drove in. He was standing in the hallway. It was a whole, I wrote a whole paper on this because it was so exceptional, the whole experience. Um, he, he was in another place. He was clearly not in this realm. He yes. was somewhere else in a memory, in an existence that wasn't part of this realm. And I just gently said, Robert, why don't you come in and I'll play some music for you. And so he happily came into his room because he loved music so much. And I played for him off and on. Oh, my goodness. And the, the carol manager came in and sang. We played. I just played as much as we spoke of earlier, frenetic music as I could humanly do with hopefully not very many stops. I got his attention right away with that music. That was great. And he's, but he still was very tight is the only way I can describe it. And mm. a lot of coming and going in effort. But in the end, we were able, I mean, actually they had called his, his doctor in. Yes. She came to the door while I was playing. And at this point, Robert was totally engaged with me. He was smiling. He was eating his crispies as they call them. Mm. And he was really in a much better place and she came in and just stood in the doorway for a while just mm -hmm. I could see her mouth was open and mm -hmm. in did a little check with him just checked his tongue and some little things which she wouldn't have been able to get near him mm -hmm. earlier he left and she said to the carol manager I've heard about the power of music but I've never seen that and she knew him very well so she knew about this side of him and she couldn't believe what had happened. And, you know, when I left, he was in a much better place, but I also knew it was sort of like, I felt like a state of grace. I felt so grateful that I could do something for yes. this lovely man who was in torment and it wasn't going to fix him. It wasn't going to be forever. No. It was going to be for then. And maybe he would sleep a bit. There were times I played for him where he was not sleeping all night. And I love to talk about that. He would he would fall asleep while I played, which in his case was a fabulous thing because he was not sleeping. And I'd be playing not necessarily calming music. I'd be playing maybe Kaylee music, so Scottish dance music. Yes. And he would sit there practically snoring. I mean, really for all intents and purposes, sleeping mm. and be tapping, moving his feet mm. in the complex Kaylee dance steps. That's that embodied knowledge that we have to remember someone living with dementia 
is someone who has lived whatever length of time they've lived. Yes. And they are now, they've had heartbreaks and happiness and losses and all the things that happen in our lives. They have embodied knowledge. They have things in their bones that we, we all do. We have knowledge and abilities and quirks in our bodies. And yes. that guy doing those Kaylee dance steps was the equivalent of, you know, that's embodied knowledge. That's the woman who would ask me, could I get you a cup of tea every time I came? Yes. Not because she could get me a cup of tea, but because she'd done that for 80 yes. years. So that's important to respect because, and the more we can kind of see that and respect that, the better. That is so brilliant. You said that very eloquently, Claire. I mean, that is so then A lot of the time when you're talking, I keep thinking of that phrase that, Professor Oliver Sacks, the late Oliver Sacks. Yes. The way he described music, and I'm probably going to get it wrong, but it was like, and I know you're talking about the past of the individual being in, in their bones is a lovely way to put it. I often say that, you know, in my mum's case, she listened to music the day before she died that really met her, you know, and I say it's almost as if it was in her DNA. It was the the nine lessons and carols from oh. King's College, Cambridge. And I have, she, she died on Christmas Day, and so we listened to that on Christmas Eve, and she just opened her eyes. That was the only, you know, flicker of 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 sort of connection. But it was hugely powerful at the time. And it's um, the Oliver Sacks is the way that the the past and in what we're talking about that individual's past. And it's something like it's in you can't recover it in any other way. But it's embedded in music as if in amber. It's caught. Yes. It's captured in the music. And I think that all that you've said today and all that you have done really with with your music and your skills and the way you use it. And actually you've, you've related it very, very articulately. It's all about that, isn't it? And I know when you sent me the three things that you know now that every individual is an individual, you know, um, whether they live with dementia or not, and they are the sum of their personality, history, genetics, experiences. They are what they've lived, aren't they? Mm. And each time you said, though, just for a little while, you tempered it each time because, of course, it is only probably going to be a temporary respite from whatever it is. That's right. You know, I thought that was very interesting because this is obviously something that's very powerfully felt, you feel powerfully, that it's just a temporary thing. And you can go in, as you did with the man in the care home, who is very coiled and tense and tight, and then you can yes. just unwind him with your music. I mean, I think it's just just wonderful what you're doing. And I'm going to suggest that we finish now, but there was another beautiful piece of you playing, and I couldn't think where it might be appropriate, but I think if we just play out to it and everybody can just listen, and in a way you hear the power of music, we can talk until the cows come home, but sometimes yes. there's nothing to beat the music. And this is um, the Alamand from J.S. Bach's first cello suite in G major.
were talking about entrainment and playing this piece out. And the core thing I found when I did my PhD and watched all this video and watched all these couples, and I was trying to understand what I was seeing. And what I saw was the music became bigger than the three of us in the room. And the yes. music became the thing that connected us and connected mm. these two people who were not always the best of friends. I learned mm. very quickly that, well, I don't know what I was thinking, just because you're the <laughs> child of somebody. And their connections that were made, and it's not always familiar music either. It can be improvisation. It can be something new. Why do we always, I have to say this every time, mm. it's so important not to relegate somebody to only things that they knew in the past. If you have got early onset dementia and you were 40, you might live 20 more years. Yes. Do you really want to be told, I'm sorry, but you're going to have the same food, the same music, the same people in your life? Really good point. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't you hate to hear that for yourself? I mean... Yeah, drive you mad, probably. Mm. Yes. It's putting yourself in people's shoes. Mm. Simple things. Music therapy is great, but there are simpler ways if people can understand and get trained correctly to understand how music can work singing just alongside somebody while you dress them there's been studies about that so there's a lot to be uncovered still and um yeah so this piece you know it's a piece by Bach and it's just it doesn't matter if you have any musical you know you said earlier that silly thing Pippa that you're not a musical person I don't buy that from anybody and I feel like if you can just sit, be receptive, don't ask any questions, just let it be there. Your experience is as right as the highest educated classical connoisseur. And it's it should, if it's done right, be a story. Because that's what we all want to do is be told a story in the end. Well, thank you, Claire, for landing the episode back at my feet as a storyteller. That's very sweet of you. And yes, you did say that. There was a piece I remember um, uh, sort of seeing you say that on a video or something. And of course, they are all stories. And um, and and although I myself wouldn't send that music, I did ballet for years, and there are pieces of music that can move me completely to tears, or as you say, can transport me. They can transport me back, or they can transport me out of time. Exactly. Well, thank you so much, Claire. I thought I would enjoy talking to you, and I really have. That was absolutely brilliant. You were fantastic. Thank, thank you. you. It's incredible to think that Dr. Garabedian has played with the likes of Ray Charles and Natalie Cole, not to mention Led Zeppelin in front of 40,000 people. Now she plays for someone just one person in his or her bedroom, nursing home room or hospital bed as they reach the very end of their life. What an extraordinary, hugely talented and compassionate woman she is. Claire is full of curiosity, always wanting to learn more. How many of us, even if we'd had the musical skill to play Saint-Saëns de Swan for our grandfather and the understanding to see how it affected him, would then have taken it further? realised that there was something more to this, and found a highly specialised course to discover yet more about the positive impact that music can have. And I love the idea of music and other art forms taking us out of our realities, out of normal time, so that our three hours at a concert or play can go by in a flash. While for someone else, those same three hours seem like an eternity, 
How true that is and how strange and profound. I learnt a lot from Dr Garabedian, yet she herself is very modest and down to earth. You can find out more about her and hear some of her wonderful cello playing on her website, which is drclairegarabedian.com. And that's D-R-C-L-A-I-R-E-G-A-R-A-B-E-D-I-A-N.com. I learn so much from each and every one of my guests and feel honoured and privileged to borrow one of Claire's phrases to meet them all. This is the last podcast of the series, but I will be back in 2023 to talk to more fabulous, fascinating, endlessly inspiring individuals. Until then, I wish you all a very happy, healthy and joyously festive period over Christmas and the New Year. And finally, if you've enjoyed listening today, I would be very, very grateful if you would rate, review and subscribe to the podcast on whichever platform or channel you're listening to it on, as this will help spread the word about the podcast. And then together, perhaps we can further diminish the stigma, increase the knowledge and quash the myths surrounding dementia.